So Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Thank you, Carl. Let's pray. Uh, Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for these uh, songs that were written down uh, many years ago uh, by your people to reflect on their life and the things that you had done for them and the things that they needed uh, for you to do. Uh, and Father, we pray that as we reflect on them this morning that you would uh, help us to recall the great things that you have done for us and also to press to our hearts uh, how much we need you for the present uh, but also for the future as well. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, when I was growing up, uh, we all had, everyone in my family, all the children and the parents as well, I think, actually, we all had our own photo album. Uh, and my mother had bought us each an album, and over the years, we would take photos, my parents would take photos, and they would stick them in. They'd stick them into the album uh, and it's always fun to go back and to, uh, <laughs> perhaps fun, perhaps not so fun, to go back and to look at the photos, uh, to look at the things that you did throughout your life. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a lovely thing to do. I have a uh, photo at home in my uh, cupboard of my grandparents' wedding. Uh, in those days, you pretty much only had one or two wedding photos. <laughs> and I think this is one of the two, possibly. Uh, you didn't have many because they were expensive and also because, as this one is, they were hand-painted. Uh, the film was black and white and after it was uh, taken, someone would go and colour it in. <laughs> so there's quite rosy red cheeks uh, <laughs> and, and those kinds of things. Uh, that photo lives in the cupboard, but I have four photos. I looked around my house to see how many photos I had out. I have four photos framed and on the wall. Uh, one photo is a photo my sister took. Uh, when she was going on a trip th through Central Australia. One photo is a photo that I took climbing uh, Hearts Mountain with a friend some years ago. Uh, another is a family photo, and the last is a photo which belonged to my grandmother until she died. It used to be on her sideboard. It was a photo of the two of us standing together on my uh, graduation day. Photos remind us of the things we've done, don't they? <laughs> They remind us of the places that we've been, the people that we've known. Invariably, they remind us of good times. We really put up a photo of something cat catastrophic that we've done. We usually put up photos of exciting things, wonderful things, memorable things. They remind us of better times sometimes, times when we were happier, times when we were younger, times when we were less careworn. 
Psalm 126 is much like those photos, much like those photo albums. It's a psalm, it's a song of people who are looking back through the photo family album and remembering happier days. They're looking back at God's work in the past, but they're not just looking back, they're looking back in order to face the present and in order to look forward to the future. The psalm begins with a recollection of the past events. Verse 1, when the Lord brought back the captive to Zion, or some versions, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like men who dreamed. That expression, restore the fortunes, is a kind of favourite expression of the later prophets uh, to refer to the return from exile of the people of God in seven. Uh, 22 BC, Assyria had come and attacked Israel and taken the 10 northern tribes off as captives. And then uh, a number of centuries later in 587, Nebuchadnezzar had come and stormed Jerusalem. And he'd taken the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah uh, into uh, into captivity. But after 70 years in exile and captivity and under subjugation, the people were finally coming back from those two uh, southern tribes. The people were finally coming back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah. This psalm celebrates that return of those captives, that restoration of the fortunes of the city of God by God's mighty power. But that return from exile was not just about a return, kind of a geographical return. They were over there and now they're over here. Isn't it great? They've come back to their homeland. It's not just about being captives in a foreign land and being set free, but it's about forgiveness and restoration. You see, the reason that the people were in exile in the first place was because of their sin, because of the way that they'd treated God. God had sent them into exile so that they would discover what it was like to live A life without God. It was misery and devastation and slavery and fear. But now the people are coming back, coming back not just from this far land, but from this judgment. Well, what was it like for those people to come back? After all those years in captivity, what was it like to be back home, to be free again? What was it like to have moved from being under the wrath of God to knowing again the kindness and the compassion of God, to come back under the safety and the provision of God. What was that like? Well, the psalmist says it was like a dream. That is, it was too good to be true. It was like something they could never imagine could happen, like paying four fifty for jousting sticks. <laughs> Tell him he's dreaming. It's never going to happen. It wouldn't be uh, a Sunday without a reference to Les Mis. Uh, But in Les Mis, the single mother Fontaine is driven into destitution. Uh, She's driven into prostitution. She ends up selling her hair, selling her teeth in order to provide for her child, uh, who she never sees anymore because she's had to send her away to live under the care of two of the most awful people uh, you've ever known. In the musical, Fontaine sings about her dream for a better life, a dream which had been crushed by the cruelty of her circumstances and her situation. I dreamed a dream in time gone by when hope was high and life worth living. I dreamed that love would never die. I dreamed that God would be forgiving. 
Then I was young and unafraid, and dreams were made and used and wasted. There was no ransom to be paid, no song unsung, no wine untasted. But the tigers come at night with their voices soft as thunder, as they tear your hopes apart, as they turn your dreams to shame. What was her dream? Her dream was a good world, a good world where God was forgiving. Her dream was that somehow, in some way, the ransom price could be paid to redeem her from her life of slavery, slavery to prostitution. But her dream had been turned to shame. It was an impossible dream. As she she sings that song, she says, that was my dream, but there's no chance it's ever going to happen. And I think lots of people in our world feel like that. I think there are people who are deeply ashamed of their lives, deeply ashamed of their past lives, deeply ashamed of their present lives. For some people it might be an abortion. They felt driven to it, the circumstances of their life felt like they demanded it and that's what happened. And nobody knows. They alone live with the shame and the regret. For some people, it might be the way they've conducted their business. It might not have been illegal, but they've dealt badly with people. They've taken advantage of people and they live with the shame and the cost and the consequences of that. For some people, maybe not from Western cultures, but especially from Asian cultures, it might be the way they've treated their parents or their family. Deep shame and regret over what consequences they've brought on other members of their family. For others, it's not the shame of what they've done, but who they are. They're an alcoholic. They're addicted to drinking to excess. Some people, they're ashamed because they're an angry person. The anger just is so deeply entrenched in their personality. Anytime anyone says anything, it just bubbles up and bubbles out. For others, it's the shame that comes from how they feel about people of the same sex. Attracted to them, but they don't want to be. We're ashamed and we think there's no way back. We feel imprisoned... Not only by our actions, but also by our very identities, who we are. We dream that the price could be paid to rescue us. We dream that God would be forgiving. But we think that that's an impossible dream. How could God forgive me? But remarkably, this psalm says it's not an impossible dream. The people of God experienced it firsthand. That is, they experienced the return from shame and slavery and, and judgment. Exiled from God, estranged from God, under the judgment of God and brought back. What was it like? We were like people who dreamed. We never thought it could happen. Tell him he's dreaming. But it did. 
And that return from exile, that return from the judgment of God, was just a taste tester of a greater, a greater return from judgment that God achieved on the cross. Not just a return to a city, not just a, a return from a distant land. On the cross and in the life and resurrection of Jesus, God brought us back from sin and death and judgment. God has forgiven everything. God has turned us from enemies to friends. God has released us from captivity to sin. Released us from an captiv captivity to an empty way of life. Released us from captivity to wrong desires of our heart. And released us to serve and to love him. God has promised us a good world. He's promised to make the world right again. And if we trust in Jesus, if you trust in Jesus and put your hope in him, God has paid that ransom price. God has redeemed you from that empty way of life and God is bringing you to a good world which he has promised to us. Is it too good to be true? No. Whoever thought they could come back, but God has done it in Jesus Christ. Well, what was it like coming back from exile? It was like a dream. Nobody expected it to happen. And this dream was so magnificent that the mouths of these people are stuffed full of joy. Verse 2, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. I remember when I was at school, we used to play a game called Chubby Bunnies. Has anyone ever... Has anyone ever heard of Chubby Bunnies? I don't know. I wondered to myself, does anyone still play that? It's probably, you know, OHS non compliant. But, uh, uh, you know, the idea is that you stuff marshmallows into your mouth, right? And, and every time you add another one into your mouth, you have to say the number that you have. And then, ch so one Chubby Bunny, two Chubby Bunnies, and then you add the third one in, three Chubby Bunnies. And, and what it is, it gets worse and worse and worse, and the person has to you know, try and keep the, the marshmallows in their mouth as they say, you know, 18 Chubby Bunnies. It's, it, it's, never, it's never pleasant, uh, and it always ends badly. But the point is that it might not be the most attractive comparison, but... Uh, in the same way, the writer says that these people's mouths were stuffed full of joy, just like those marshmallows, so full you couldn't keep them in. There was so much joy in these people's hearts and mouths, so stuffed full of the joy of what God had done, that it just spewed out. It's not great. It's not great. But the point is, you see... The point is that they were so deeply affected that they couldn't keep in the joy, the, the joy and the reality of what God had done. And I think when we first grasp the enormity of the gospel, that's often what it's like. Mouths full of joy, mouths full of praise, mouths full of delight. We can't stop talking about it. Have you heard what God has done? A friend of mine used to always say that a church needs a continual stream of people who are being converted. People who are discovering the good news about Jesus because they breathe life into the church. Because those new Christians are people who are full of joy, full of the delight of the gospel. And they energise us. They energise those of us who have been tramping that road for a lot longer. It's so exciting to see 
They remind you of the goodness of God. They remind you of what it is, the joy of being forgiven. They remind you what it is to have a life that means something, that matters. We don't always stay at that point, of course. We'll see that a bit more in a moment. But even for those of us who've been on that road for a lot longer, there are times when we come back, when we come back to those moments of joy, times when we're struck again by the power of the gospel, joy in what God has done. That joy is one of the great marks of genuine gospel work. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's a sign that the Spirit has taken hold of our lives. You might think, well, I don't have that joy. Well, why not pray for it? (laughs) Why not say, God, give me that gospel joy? Because that's actually a prayer that God loves to answer. God loves to fill the hearts of his people with the joy of the gospel. In this psalm, the people look back to what God has done for them and to the great joy that it brought them. But having remembered the past, they also apply that past to their present circumstances. In verse 4, they cry out, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The first uh, thing to notice is that whatever God had done in the past, things were not going so well at the moment. Their previous experience of joy was no longer the present reality. Whatever God had done for them in bringing them back, it wasn't the final deal. There was still more to do. The return from exile wasn't the restoration of the whole world. And in the same way, even though God has done more for us than he did for these people who wrote this psalm, even though God has sent his own son and forgiven sin on the cross and poured out on his people the Holy Spirit, even though God has done more for us, there is actually still more to do. The world is not yet put right. We don't see everything subject to Christ. There's still more to be done. When we first uh, become Christians, we can be full of joy and hope. But because we haven't reached our final destination, because Jesus, Jesus hasn't put the world right and established his reign once and for all, that joy can fade. We start off with joy, but the joy fades and we cry out for the world to be put right. We cry out for God to fix things. So you become a Christian and you join a church. And the first three years are fantastic. You love it. And then you realise that the church is not as perfect as you hoped that it might be. You serve and trust Jesus faithfully for 30 years and then you're struck down with a debilitating illness. And you live out the remainder of your life in agony. A church has a faithful and strong gospel ministry for 50 years, but then gives up the gospel and eventually closes its doors and gets sold and becomes a printing place. (laughs) Just as for the people in Psalm 126, that initial experience of joy in the gospel can be displaced by the ongoing reality of sin and suffering. How do we wrestle with that situation? How do we deal with that? These people did it by calling out to God. They call out to God to do in the present what he's done in the past. The expression in verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, is exactly the same as verse 1. 
When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like men who dreamed. They're saying to God, God, do it again. We've seen you do it before. Do it again now. Make it like it was before. Make it good again. Finish the work. The image that the psalm uses is of streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. The Negev was uh, a desert region. And as you might know, in desert regions, sometimes they have things called wadis, which are kind of shallow riverbeds, which are dry for most of the time. But then the rain comes, uh, and what happens with the rain is that these riverbeds fill up uh, and they deliver uh, water to this kind of lifeless desert. And all of a sudden, everything just kind of springs into life. What was a, a, a barren wasteland becomes this kind of oasis. If it was written in Australia, they probably would have said, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like uh, water in Lake Eyre. I don't know if you remember a few years ago after the floods in Queensland. All that water kind of went down through the centre of Australia into the, the, uh, the Lake Eyre region. It just sprang to life. And there were these amazing kind of time-lapse photos and things of this dead salt pan becoming this like lake in the middle of the middle of Australia and the birds and wildlife came from everywhere to kind of set up their homes there it was extraordinary it's a complete reversal you you couldn't get a more exaggerated kind of reversal uh, of fortunes and the psalmist is saying Do that, God. We've seen you do that before. Do that again, like streams in the Negev. Turn our barren wasteland into this verdant kind of pasture land. That's what we long for, isn't it? That complete reversal, that sudden turnaround. And as we long for that, We need to look back to the past and pray to God that he would do what he's done in the past. God, you've done it before. You did it for the people in Egypt. You did it for the people in the exile. You brought them back. You did it in the days of the Reformation. You you reinvigorated the church and and the gospel went out. You did it in the the time of Whitfield and Wesley where where whole nations were turned around around and, and slavery was abolished. God, we've seen you do it before. Do it again. Maybe you're in a lake air kind of place at the moment. You need to pray that God would do it again. You need to look back to what God has done in the past and pray, God, do that again now. Or you might be walking alongside someone who's in that kind of barren wilderness. Well, why not meet up with them and pray through Psalm 126? You don't need a special qualification. Uh, you don't need a title to be able to do that. You could just meet up with them and you could sit down, you could think together, you could write down what are the great things that God has done in the past? What's the great things that God has done in your life and in my life and in history and in the world and in Jesus? Let's write those down. Let's give thanks to God for those things and let's pray that God would do that again today. Let's pray that God would restore your fortunes like he's restored your fortunes in the past and the fortunes of so many other people. You might be in a, uh, in a very good place at the moment. You might be very confident in God very content in where he's placed you. Well, if that's you, then 
when the difficult times come, don't, don't forget to pray. Don't forget to remember these good times and to pray that God would do the same thing again in that difficult future. While these people remember the past, the great joy that God's salvation brought, they cry out in the present that God would do the same again. They remember the past, they cry out in the present, and finally they trust God for the future. The last couple of verses of the psalm are not a plea, but an expression of trust. Verse 5, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. The initial part of that image there is utterly depressing. Uh, Here are people going out with seed to sow, but with no real prospect of it growing, of anything happening. They take their bag of seed into the field, but they're dragging their heels because the field is barren. It's that desert wasteland. They're throwing out the seed, but it's just kind of falling on this rock-hard, dry ground. They scatter the seed that they have, but as they do that, they're in tears because there's just no real prospect that this is going to produce a harvest. Ed Borst sent me a couple of weeks ago uh, two pumpkin seeds for the annual pumpkin growing uh, competition that he has. Uh, I haven't planted them yet, Ed. I'm sorry. <laughs> they're, still, they're still on the phone table. <laughs> I was going to quickly do it before I came this morning, but I ran out of time. But even if I do get round to planting them, which I, which I hopefully will, I can't imagine that if they don't grow, I'll be crying. Now, we all know I'm a bit of an emotional person, but, but even still... I can't imagine crying over two pumpkin seeds that didn't grow. I can't imagine going out in the backyard, putting them in the ground and thinking, this is never going to work. See, in order to understand where these people are at in this psalm, we have to understand that if, the, if, if these crops didn't grow, they had nothing to eat. For those, you know, We plant crops, we plant vegetables and plants for our own kind of joy and fun. If they don't, grow, it doesn't matter. For most of us, I think the equivalent would be something like trudging down to Woolworths and Coles and, and, and getting in there and, the, and it just being completely empty. Imagine going to the, to the Woolies next door and just stepping the door and there just being nothing. There is a famine in the land and there is just no food. I reckon if that was a situation, you'd be driving down to Woolies and you'd be, you'd be bawling your eyes out because you'd be thinking this is a lost cause. But such is the trust that these people have in God that they say to themselves, I might be sowing in tears now, but I know that I will come back with arms full of harvest. I know that I'll come home with great sheaves because God is powerful and because God is good. I've seen him do it in the past and I know that he can do it again. They're not actually talking about crops, you see. It's just a metaphor of their hopeless situation. And it's a metaphor of God's remarkable power to turn things around. 
But the point is this. It's one thing for us to remember the past. It's another thing for us to cry out for God to do the same thing in the present. But we also need to remember to trust God for the future. We also need to remember to say, I know I'm sowing in tears, but God's going to turn this around somehow. I don't know how it's going to happen, but God's going to do it. I only learned in the last couple of years uh, through a friend to pray prayers that express trust in God. That is, not just, Lord, please be with me today, but Lord, I trust that you are with me today. Not just, Lord, please forgive me again for, for wandering away, for falling into sin, but Lord, I trust that you have forgiven me. And I trust that you will help me to put off sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just, Lord, save me, but Lord, I trust that you have saved me because whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A few years ago, uh, I wrote down a prayer of trust to help me to learn to pray every day to trust in God. You might uh, find these prayers helpful uh, as I found them helpful. Lord, I trust you today. I trust that my sins have been cast into the depths of the sea. I trust that whatever others think about me, you see me today and forever through your Son, Jesus Christ. I trust that your love for me does not waver, but is steady and that my life is hid with Christ. I trust that you can use me for ministry. I trust that you can use others for ministry as well. I trust that you'll give me everything I need to do the work today that you've called me to do. I trust that when I feel like a failure today, your strength is greater than my weakness and your faithfulness is greater than my unfaithfulness. I trust that when things go well today, it's because of your strength and your compassion. When ministry endeavours seem to fail today, I trust that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And if I was writing today, I think I'd add, and when the world around me seems to be falling apart, I trust that you will redeem your world and your people, and I trust that even if I suffer, you will bring me safe to my eternal home with you. I suspect that some of us are better at one thing than the other. That is... Some of us are good at remembering the past. We'll remember what God has done. But we fail to apply the past to our present circumstances. Or some of us are good at crying out to God, God, the the world is falling apart, you've got to help me. But we're not very good at trusting God for the future. Or some of us are good at trusting God. We're always saying, there's nothing to worry about. God will do it. But we never stop to ask God to do it. And we never stop to be thankful for what God has already done. Psalm 126 teaches us to do all three things together. To remember God's work in the the past, especially in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, to remember it with joy. But Psalm 126 also teaches us to pray in the present that God would do again what he's done in the past, that he'd fulfill his good purposes today. 
And Psalm 126 teaches us to express our certain hope that when Jesus returns, he will turn deserts to meadows and dry streams to flowing rivers and even already now sinners to saints. It's a psalm which teaches us to remember the past, to cry out to God in the present and to trust God for the future. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that uh, for those of us who have discovered the gospel and put our trust in Jesus, we thank you that you have called us from darkness into your wonderful light. You have released us from slavery to, to sin and you have released us into the wonderful life of serving, knowing and loving you. Lord, thank you that you've brought us back from shame and contempt to be your children. Lord, thank you that you have brought us into your family and poured out on us your powerful Holy Spirit through whom we call out to you, Abba Father. Lord, thank you for the wonderful blessings of the gospel. Lord, we pray that those things would be so deeply pressed and ingrained on our hearts and minds that we would be full of joy, hearts full to overflowing, mouths full of praise. But Lord, as we look around our world at present, we're dismayed. Lord, there is so little peace. There's war, there's famine, there's terrorism, there's the disintegration of the fabric of society. People are increasingly opposed to each other. And Lord, we wonder about our world. And so, Father, we pray that you would do your great gospel work today as you have done in the past that you would restore nations, that you would call people as you've called us to know and love your son, Jesus Christ, that you would call them out of darkness into light, that you would call them out of prison into freedom. And Father, as we pray these things, we trust that you will hear us. We trust that you will do what you have promised to redeem your world, to call people from every tribe and language and people and nation, to be people who love and serve you and know and trust your son, Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be people who remember, who cry out and who trust you. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.